The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense. I'm John Wiener. Later in the show, Ken Burns has a new documentary on PBS. It's called The U.S. and the Holocaust, and it's the most politically engaged and relevant work of his career. Historian David Nassau will comment. But first, can the Republicans win control of the Senate in the upcoming midterms? John Nichols has our analysis. That's coming up in a minute. Can the Democrats hold the Senate? For comment, we turn to John Nichols. Of course, he's national affairs correspondent for the nation. We reached him today in Madison. Hi, John. Hey, John. It's good to be with you. Well, right now, the Senate, of course, is divided 50-50 with Vice President Kamala Harris casting the tie-breaking vote. The Republican chances of taking control require holding on to every seat they've got, re-electing every incumbent, and then winning one seat currently held by a Democrat. They're targeting three Democrats in Georgia. Democratic incumbent Raphael Warnock is being challenged by former football star Herschel Walker in Arizona. The Republicans are running a former libertarian named Blake Masters against incumbent Democrat Mark Kelly, the astronaut. And in Pennsylvania, there's an open seat formerly held by a Republican, and Republicans are running TV's Dr. Oz against John Fetterman, the wonderful former Mayor Braddock and now Lieutenant Governor. Who would you say is the most vulnerable incumbent Republican senator running for re-election right now? I got to go with my own Ron Johnson from Wisconsin, my friend. But didn't Ron Johnson say he wouldn't run again when he was elected six years ago? Well, say is a polite word there, John. He actually promised he wouldn't run again. And uh, he said that in a number of settings in 2016 when he was in a, in a tough race as part of his whole shtick, which is to suggest that He's sort of a citizen who was kind of dragged into the Senate and doesn't really want to be there. But the reality is that we've learned uh, since the, those uh, protestations that he didn't want to be in the Senate, that Ron Johnson has more than doubled uh, his wealth since going to the U.S. Senate. Wow. So it's turned out to be pretty good for him. And somehow a uh, little bit of that sort of influence, a little nudge from Donald Trump uh, he decided that his promise wasn't really all that important. His word uh, was not his bond, and he is running for re-election. Now, I understand that his campaign is basically negative ads attacking Mandela Barnes for all sorts of terrible things. Well, the thing to understand about Ron Johnson is that he is an incredibly lazy senator. Uh, he doesn't spend a lot of time with people in his state. He is frankly not that well known even now after two terms of the Senate, except as a conspiracy theorist and a bit of a nut. And as a result, when he seeks reelection, and this was the same in 2016, he doesn't try to sell himself. He tries to drag his opponent down, you know, so far that people kind of, you know, out of desperation decide to vote for the incumbent. And this has been a pretty clear strategy of his, you know, throughout his time as a, as a senator. And what kind of campaign is Mandela Barnes running? Well, Mandela Barnes is running a, a very classic grassroots Wisconsin campaign. He is a former state legislator, the current lieutenant governor of Wisconsin. He spent a lot of time around the state, uh, sort of the opposite of Johnson. He knows a lot of people in a lot of places. 
And so what he is doing is uh, campaigning as someone who is from Milwaukee, the largest city of the state in the state, but who knows the rural and farm country of the state quite well and, and is focusing a lot of his attention on the mid-sized cities of the state. Those are really swing areas. They're traditional manufacturing cities that have been hard hit by deindustrialization. And so he's, he's been there a lot. Um, so it's a classic campaign. But the challenge, John, is that he's being hit with such a massive negative attack campaign that instead of being able to deliver his own message, he's often spending a lot of time responding to the, the attacks from Ron Johnson and Ron Johnson's supporters. And what are the attack ads focusing on? The campaign that, that Ron Johnson is running could be described in a lot of ways, but I think the easiest way to describe it is Willie Horton on steroids. For folks who don't remember that name, uh, Willie Horton ads were a certain type of ad that was run against Mike Dukakis back in 1988. And they focused on crime issues in particular, but really they were just blatantly racist. They, they sought to uh, get people to think that uh, Mike Dukakis was soft on crime and, and also, you know, sympathetic to really bad players. And they, you know, terrible imagery, the whole bit. And, and that's what they're doing a lot of to Mandela Barnes here in Wisconsin. Now, it's important to point out Mandela Barnes is a 35-year-old black man. And uh, what they have been saying in the Ron Johnson ads and in ads from his allies and supporters, particularly Mitch McConnell's uh, campaign committee, is that he is dangerous. Uh, and they have all sorts of pictures of him that, that suggest he's helping uh, immigrants climb over the wall uh, that doesn't exist down on the border. Um, is this the they, border between uh, Wisconsin and Illinois? Which border is it? Well, is actually, that that would be just as big an issue. But no, it's the <laughs> it's the U.S.-Mexican border. And they have had mailings in which they have darkened Mandela Barnes's skin and you know put filters on to make the pictures darker, things of that nature. Uh, they're generally suggesting that he is uh, incredibly soft on crime in favor of everything illegal you can imagine. So it's a pretty rough campaign and it's it's genuinely dishonest. I mean, it's a false. These are these attacks are based on really stretches of the truth in so many ways. Uh, to give you a good example, when he was a state legislator, Mandela Barnes was in favor of reforming the cash bail system so that people didn't sit in jail uh, because they didn't have enough money to, to cover a, a bail order. This is his position is very parallel to that of Rand Paul, who was supportive of, of bail reforms. It's it's similar to that of the Koch brothers, who put a lot of money into supporting bail reform efforts. And so uh, far from being radical, it's a it's a very mainstream position. But the Republicans are are spending a huge amount of money to make it look as if uh, Mandela Barnes is somehow a supporter of a of a radical view, uh, and in fact to suggest that he's somehow sympathetic to criminals. So moving on to the other contested states now, all three of the Republican challengers in those key swing states have two things in common. All were endorsed in the primaries by Donald Trump, and none of those three Republican challengers have been elected to anything before. Uh, which one would you say is the worst Republican Senate candidate? Well, you know, there's a lot of people who put their money on Herschel Walker down in uh, down in Georgia. And I and I hear a lot of Georgians say that and they would like to to win the race. 
But I, you know, honestly, I've got to give it to Dr. Oz. Um, you <laughs> it's know, a, it's a tough question. It's, a, it's tough competition. And, you know, Blake Masters out in Arizona is, is quite a competitor. And so is J.D. Vance in Ohio. There's a lot of these Trump backed candidates who are really weak and troublesome candidates. But um, the reason I give it to Dr. Oz is because of the, the audacity of the man. Um, yeah. He's not from Pennsylvania. His, <laughs> there is his that. office is in New Jersey. And, and to John Fetterman's credit, Fetterman has, has made driven that point home quite effectively by putting people like uh, Miami Steve Van Zant from the E Street Band, Bruce Springsteen's uh, longtime associate, on, you know, with little video ads saying, you know, hey, we miss you here in New Jersey. When are you coming back? And things of that nature. So it's been a it, it's been a very, very, I guess the best way to say it is Dr. Oz has been an easy target. Then he's had a lot of self-inflicted wounds. I mean, there was a famous incident out in, in Pennsylvania where he went to a grocery store, misnamed the store. It's a very popular Pennsylvania store. He misnamed the store. And then he said he was buying, you know, all the, the elements for crudite. Uh, and, and Fetterman's response was, well, in, in New Jersey, we or in Pennsylvania, we call that a veggie plate. Uh, and, and it's just gone from there. So, uh, the, the thing is that, uh, the Pennsylvania race, like the Wisconsin race, critical race for flipping a Republican seat is, is in a very tightly divided state. So even though Oz is a miserable candidate, and even though Ron Johnson is a miserable candidate. I mean, these will still be competitive races, but I, I will I will say that um, Oz has has made his race harder by being Dr. Oz. Well, let's talk about Arizona. Blake Masters is the candidate of Peter Thiel, the billionaire tech mogul. I saw that Mitch McConnell's super PAC, the Senate Leadership Fund, was pulling $10 million worth of ad buys out of Arizona. What's that about? Well, I mean, I think there, there's a couple of theories going on there. One, Mark Kelly, the senator, has run a, a pretty good campaign, and Arizona is trending uh, more and more Democratic. So there's an element of that. Blake Masters has been somewhat of a stumbling candidate. He is a newcomer to the game. And also, I, I think that, that you know, you have to give McConnell credit. He is a guy who looks at his map constantly and, you know, sort of always looking for where the hot spots are, where the potential is. And I think that they've moved an immense amount of money into Wisconsin, in part because Mandela Barnes got ahead in Wisconsin. And so yeah. they were really scared that they were going to lose an incumbent there. So they've moved a lot in. And that's Wisconsin race is still effectively tied. There's also the reality that they've got some other prospects that have opened up. And that is particularly in Nevada, where, uh, you know, Senator Cortez Mastos, the Democrat, is polling just even maybe even a little behind Laxalt, the Republican. And so they're moving a lot of money in there because they think they might be able to flip a seat. I wouldn't suggest that Arizona is going to be off the off the map. I think it'll still remain a very competitive state. And Peter Thiel, this billionaire, has shown a great willingness to come in on behalf of his candidates. There is no question that the money he put behind J.D. Vance got J.D. Vance the nomination in Ohio similarly with Blake Masters. And so I don't think Thiel is going to give up on these guys. So to some extent, McConnell, being the conniving character that he is, uh, is probably thinking, I can pull a little money out of here and they'll put so, somebody else will come and put it in. One more factor. 
all the Republicans we've talked about here are super loyal to Donald Trump. What has Donald Trump done for them? Well, I looked that up. Trump has $99 million in his Save America PAC. That's more than the Democratic National Committee and the Republican National Committee put together. Trump spent some money in the primaries to take out in incumbent Republicans who were not sufficiently loyal to him. But since then, the Save America PAC has given a total of $757,000 in all federal races and another $150,000 to the Republican Party. That means he's still got about $98 million left. What is he doing with his super PAC money? Well, I read that in the month of August, he spent $4 million on Trump's legal fees. So how do you explain the fact that Trump is spending almost none of his $99 million of, of PAC money supporting his own hand-picked candidates for Senate races? Well, I have some bad news for you, John. Your former president is a con man. <laughs> um, you know, I mean, that's, that's just the truth of the matter is, Donald Trump, you know, spent the better part of 70 years being a, a failed businessman in New York, going bankrupt again and again. And then he hit on probably the best con of all, which is being a presidential candidate where people will, you know, give you a lot of money um, and not really hold you to much account for what you do with it. And so the truth of the matter is that Trump, the money that's raised by Trump is essentially sitting in Trump's pocket, you know, and, and that's he will use it for his many legal challenges. And frankly, I mean, unless we're uh, misguided here in our predictions, he will use it to uh, lay the base for his 2024 presidential campaign. That's what he cares about. He's never cared about anybody else. This is a, an interesting challenge, though, because these candidates that are out there, he did create. And if by chance you had a situation where, let's say, and this is a possibility, that Ron Johnson, who Trump talked into running for re-election, gets beat by Mandela Barnes. Let's say that Dr. Oz gets beat by John Fetterman. Let's say that J.D. Vance gets beat by Tim Ryan in Ohio. Let's say that Blake Masters gets beat by Mark Kelly down in Arizona. If all of these candidates go down, if you see like a whole bunch of Trump candidates falling all over the place, and Trump candidates in gubernatorial races as well, uh, and all that's within the realm of possibility, that will damage him politically. And there is the outside chance that perhaps one of his aides or advisors might get to him in the final stages of the race and say, you really need to put a little money behind some of these people you created. But at the end of the day, I will guarantee you, I will absolutely guarantee you that Donald Trump will spend more money on his, himself than he ever spends on anyone else. John Nichols, he's national affairs correspondent for The Nation. Read him at thenation.com. Thank you, John. This is great. Thank you, John. Ken Burns has a new documentary out on PBS. It's called The U.S. and the Holocaust. It's the most politically engaged and relevant of all his work. It ends with Donald Trump and the threat from America's neo-Nazis today. For comment, we turn to David Nassau. He's a historian and biographer whose most recent book is The Last Million, Europe's Displaced Persons from World War to Cold War. We talked about it here. 
He's also written prize-winning biographies that have been shortlisted for the Pulitzer Prize, including wonderful books about William Randolph Hearst, Andrew Carnegie, and Joe Kennedy. He's Professor Emeritus of History at the CUNY Grad Center, and his writings have appeared in the New York Times, the Washington Post, and The Nation. David Nassau, welcome back. Thank you. So we have three episodes, two hours each. When I first read about it, I thought, we already know this history. We've been reading about it our whole lives. Ken Burns knows that. He's got one of his historian experts, Daniel Mendelssohn, who says, you think you've heard it all, but trust me, you haven't. I ended up agreeing with him totally. I found the show riveting. What did you think? Yeah, I, I agree totally. I began uh, watching it almost as a duty. Didn't think I was going to learn anything or be nearly as moved as I was. I thought it is an extraordinary accomplishment. It comes at the right time. It is not only a warning, but it is a piece of history that lives with us or should live with us. And I hope it gets the widest possible viewing. I hope that it makes its way into high schools and colleges. Um, it's remarkable. And it's also remarkable because it gets at the, the nasty underbelly of American history. What makes it different from other Ken Burns documentaries is that it's about what America could have done and should have done, but didn't do. It's about American apathy and, let's face it, American hostility to immigrants, immigrants in general, and Jews in particular. And it's also about the malevolence of some powerful Americans, not just supporters of Hitler like Lindbergh, but high officials of FDR's New Deal like Breckenridge Long, the Assistant Secretary of State. Historians know all about this guy, but but remind us, just for starters, what he did to help block help for Hitler's victims. The moment to get the Jews out was before the war begins and locks them into Eastern Europe. And Breckenridge Long, the Assistant Secretary of State, who was in charge of visas and immigration, made it impossible to do that. What happens is that not only are immigration restrictions, which are already um, tight and almost impossible for Eastern Europeans to get into this country, what Breckenridge Long does he make is make that even more difficult. Uh, Breckenridge Long is, is, is a real anti-Semite, and he does everything he can to keep immigrants out of the country, but especially Jewish immigrants. And the documentary also tells the stories of some heroes in America, people who did the right thing, especially a young Treasury Department lawyer named John Paley, P-E-H-L-E, along with his boss, Roosevelt's Treasury Secretary, Henry Morgenthau Jr. Let's talk about them and about the War Refugee Board, which Roosevelt created in 1944. This is kind of your territory. Ken Burns has a very, and his collaborators have a very difficult task in front of them. They've got to come up with some sort of a happy ending. They've got to find heroes. And they overreach to do that. 
in the end, I believe. Pele is a good man. Morgenthau, you know, does his best. The War Refugee Board is created, but it's much too late. By 1944, how many Jews have been killed? More than 5 million Jews have been killed. The only Jews that, are, that have survived are those in hiding, those who joined the partisans in Poland, about a quarter million Polish Jews who've escaped into the Soviet Union, and the Hungarian and the Romanian Jews, because their fascist Nazi allied rulers will not give up their Jews. Um, that changes in 1944 and 1945 for the Hungarians. But by the time the War Refugee Board is established, the, the worst has been done. So we've talked about the evil Breckenridge Long. We've talked about the heroic efforts of Henry Morgenthau. What about FDR himself? How much responsibility does he bear? How much blame? This is something that historians have been debating for a long time. Ken Burns himself has a soft spot for Franklin and Eleanor. He made a whole previous uh, documentary about them. I wonder if you agree with the critics who say he treats them here with kid gloves. He gives FDR the benefit of the doubt every time. I think that's un unfair. What we have to do in watching this, and maybe Ken Burns and his collaborators didn't do enough of it, the focus can't be on Roosevelt. It is the American public. It, it is the men and women who could have spoken out from the 1920s when the quotas are established through the 30s. This is a nationwide problem. This is a problem, the root of which is the American people and their elected representatives. They are elected representatives. Roosevelt makes the decision that the first priority is defeating Hitler. The first, second, third priority is defeating Hitler. And to divert resources to rescue the Jews or the few that are left, if it detracts from the war effort or from war morale, cannot be allowed. Roosevelt is, is not a villain here. If, if we want to look at it for villains, we have to look at churches, at educational institutions, at the press, at people of privilege and responsibility who should have spoken out for 20 years and did not. Yeah, I have to agree. And, and I think Ken Burns makes that pretty clear that the American public overwhelmingly did not want to fight a war to save Europe's Jews. Ken Burns has one of his historians saying the War Department doesn't want the soldiers to know much about the persecution of Jews because they're worried they won't fight hard if they think they're being sent to save Jews. You mentioned the press as one of the guilty parties here, and that's certainly one of Ken Burns' continuing themes showing how the press downplays and creates doubts about the reports that are coming about killing Jews. And there are some notable exceptions, one of which we want to point to here. Ken Burns quotes the Nation magazine's editor, Frida Kirschway, who wrote early in 1943, let me quote, you and I 
and the president and the Congress and the State Department are accessories to the crime and share Hitler's guilt. If we had behaved like humane and generous people instead of complacent, cowardly ones, the two million Jews lying today in the earth of Poland and Hitler's other crowded graveyards would be alive and safe. We had it in our power to rescue this doomed people, but we did not lift a hand to do it. Or perhaps it would be fairer to say that we lifted just one cautious hand encased in a tight-fitting glove of quotas and visas and affidavits and a thick layer of prejudice. Close quote, Frida Kirschway, editor of The Nation magazine, early in 1943. That's kind of Ken Burns' theme and kind of our, our theme here. One of the great features of this film, I think, it, it makes clear that this was not a secret. Americans have gotten away for a long time by saying, we didn't know anything about it, exactly as the German citizenry did. But it's false. We knew what was going on, and nothing was done. Ken Burns ends the story of the Holocaust with the liberation of the camps. Is that the way you would end the story? No, the, the story can't end there. And, and there's a little bit of misrepresentation. There's a film video of Rabbi David Eichhorn giving a service at Dachau. Um, it's filmed by George Stevens, who's attached to the army at the time, the very important producer. But we see only half the story. Eichhorn had planned to have this service on the first Sabbath after the liberation. Rabbi Eichhorn arrived at the camp on Saturday morning and he discovered that nothing had been set up. He was told that, quote, the Polish non-Jewish inmates had threatened that if a Jewish service were held in the square, they would break it up by force. <laughs> George Stevens wanted to photograph it, to film it. And he went to the American commander and he said, if you don't allow Icon to do, give this service, I will let the world know. So that's number one. Another instance, we are told in the world knows one of the most famous radio broadcasts ever is Edward R. Murrow from Buchenwald. Well, listen, listen to the speech, read the transcript. There is no mention of Jews. The newsreels do not mention Jews. Eisenhower does not mention Jews. Time magazine and the newspapers and the press in reporting about the liberation of the camps do not mention the Jews. So at, at war's end, Americans celebrate the defeat of this evil empire, but with no recognition, no understanding of the six million that have been killed. So the neglect of the Jews continues way after the war. Jewish displaced persons do not come into this country in large numbers until 1949 and 1950. They are moved from the concentration camps into displaced persons camps where they spend from three to five years. The state of Israel is formed and recognized by Truman and the Americans because the Americans don't want to let the Jews into the United States of America. These are realities that, that are lost. We also have to talk about the way Ken Burns ends his history of the U.S. and the Holocaust. 
he ends it on January 6th. He's, the, the last segment is kind of a fast montage. Police dogs attacking civil rights demonstrators in Birmingham in 1963, the assassination of Martin Luther King in 1968. Then Trump supporters demonstrating against Muslims. Trump at a rally saying, my first day in office, these people are gone. Then white nationalists marching in Charlottesville, chanting, the Jews will not replace us. Then a neo-Nazi killing 11 Jews at the Tree of Life Synagogue in Pittsburgh. And finally, the attack on the Capitol, January 6th, the guy carrying a Confederate flag inside the Capitol, the flag of treason and slavery. And the mob, including neo-Nazis, including one we focus on wearing a sweatshirt that says Camp Auschwitz. Then Daniel Mendelssohn returns to say that something like the Holocaust could happen again, this time in America. Don't kid yourself, he says. So unlike every other Ken Burns special, this one ends almost with a call to arms. We have to, we have to stop the neo-Nazis and the white nationalists in America. We can't let them win. Look, I have, a, as a historian, I have a, a strange relationship to what is called presentism and to the ending of this. I think it should be there. But I also think at the end, we lose sight of the fact that this is a unique moment, a unique and horrible moment in European history and in US history. There are other genocides. There are other massacres of innocent people, but this is 6 million Jews who were killed. This is most of European Jewry. And I, I don't want that lesson to be lost. One of the problems I find with this documentary is that the Ken Burns approach is to focus on individuals. And that's good. I, I do it in my own work. Historians have to do that. But at the same point, at the same time, the reality is that six million lives were lost. We are not confronted by the enormity of that loss, by what genocide means. There's another ingredient in a Ken Burns documentary, and that is people speak with sadness, with remorse, with melancholy, but not with anger. And I want anger. I, I want someone to cry out about this tragedy and to say, it's six million Jews. It's almost all of European Jewry. And I don't want that to be lost. I don't want that unique moment the singular suffering of European Jews to be subsumed as a lesson and as a warning. It is a lesson, it is a warning, but it's also a cataclysmic moment in our history and has to be recognized as such. David Nassau, his most recent book is The Last Million, Europe's Displaced Persons from World War to Cold War. David. Thanks for talking with us today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for giving me this opportunity.
Start Making Sense, a podcast from The Nation magazine, is co-produced by the LA Review of Books and recorded in Los Angeles at our Blythe Avenue studios. William Broughton is our audio editor. Renee Reynolds is our associate producer. Alan Minsky is our producer. Ludwig Hurtado is our executive producer. D.D. Guttenplan is editor of The Nation. Bhaskar Sunkara is president of The Nation. And Katrina Vandenhuvel is publisher and editorial director of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. You can find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com and subscribe to Start Making Sense on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. Maybe you think they're just part of getting older, but Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. Midi clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com.